This week, cave art from Indonesia created 40,000 years ago. The artist would press their hand against a rock surface, a, a cave wall or a ceiling, and then spray paint all the way around the outside of the hand. And some of the brightest objects in the universe are ready for their close-up. So the original theory that put this limit on how bright these things should be um, is about a hundred times fainter than this object. Plus, which lucky scientist bagged a Nobel Prize this year? This is the Nature Podcast for October the 9th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh. The Indonesian island of Sulawesi is home to a magnificent landscape of tall limestone towers called casts. The bases of these casts are dotted with caves, and artefacts found in these caves show that they were used by farmers and hunter-gatherers tens of thousands of years ago. Some of these early humans also used the cave walls to express their artistic side, drawing animals and stenciling their own hands. But it's been notoriously difficult to tell when the art was created. A paper this week reveals that some of these Indonesian paintings are as old as the previous record holders, some red dots in a cave in Spain. Marian Turner spoke to author Adam Brum, an archaeologist from Griffith University in Australia, who's currently on a dig in Sulawesi. In this particular area, there are at least well over 100 cave sites with rock art recorded, but I suspect there are many, many more. The people in the local Bougainese people in this region have known about them for a long time, but they were first recorded in the archaeological literature in the 1950s. So now that you've seen these artworks in the flesh, what do they actually show? The majority of the paintings show hand stencils, which are negative impressions of the human hand formed by the artist would press their hand against a rock surface, a, a cave wall or a ceiling, and then spray paint all the way around the outside of the hand. Were people using spray paint this long ago? It is possible that they, on some of the more finely made hand stencils, they may well have been using something like a, a little straw or something like that. But my, my guess is that they probably just took a big old mouthful of paint and then just sprayed it all over the wall. But they were also producing these large paintings of the largest known mammal species on Sulawesi, which include a type of um, primitive fruit-eating pig known as the babirusa, which is endemic to this island and is almost extinct as well as a, a tiny one-metre-high wild buffalo known as an Anoa, which would have been quite challenging to hunt for these early people. So how was it that you managed to date the painting so accurately? We used a method, a dating method known as uranium series dating, which measures the, the ratio of uranium and uh, thorium isotopes within stalactites that have formed over the top of the paintings after they were made. So this gives us a minimum age for the, uh, for the rock art paintings. In some cases, stalactites had started forming on the, on the cave wall or the ceiling before the painting was made. And so we're able to uh, date both above and below the pigment and therefore very tightly constrain the age of the painting itself. And just how old did they turn out to be? The range of minimum ages are between around 17,000 years ago back to around 40,000 years. So this is the first evidence from outside of, of Europe for cave painting occurring at a similar time, at around 40,000 years ago. And uh, in fact, it's probably now likely the case that cave art was practised by our early ancestors in many different parts of the world, not just Europe and Sulawesi. Is that different to what we previously thought about where art originated? Yes, the dominant theory about where art originated 
was that it originated in Europe and that these complex forms of cave painting, which are well known from many sites across France and Spain in particular, were somehow unique to this particular part of the world. What we've shown now is that, in fact, at the opposite side of the world, effectively, similar sort of art was being made at, at around the same time. So why do you think we've had such a, a Eurocentric emphasis up till now? In Asia, there's many cave sites that are known throughout the region and even further south in Australia with thousands of rock art sites that we just haven't been able to date because rock art has been notoriously difficult to accurately date previously. So I would say that it's primarily due to the severe lack of accurate dating of rock art that it has appeared for so long that uh, you know Europe was the centrepiece, if you like, in the evolution of early human artistic traditions. So are there any similarities in like the colour or the style or the materials that are used between this art that you're studying and the European cave art from around the same age? There are similarities in the, in the sense that it's similar subject matter being depicted. So what you see is in Europe, the famous depictions of horses and, and mammoths and lions and other sorts of large wild animals. And we see quite similar depictions here, except, of course, the local fauna, which are endemic to Sulawesi. And finally, can we really be sure that it was Homo sapiens who did these paintings? That's an interesting issue because Sulawesi is the largest and most ancient island in Wallacea, which is the large group of islands in between the continental regions of Asia and Australia. And as I'm sure you're aware, 10 years ago there was a discovery of Homo floresiensis, the so-called hobbit, on the island of Flores, which is just south of Sulawesi. And it appeared that this early hominid uh, was still existing on this on this Wallacean island at the time of the arrival of modern humans around 40,000 years ago. Now, Sulawesi, we've not yet found any evidence for early hominids on this island, but I think it's a it's it's a distinct possibility, in fact, that Flores was colonised from Sulawesi, uh, suggesting that at some point we we may well um, find evidence for earlier hominid species on this island. But whether they ran at the same time when modern humans rocked up. Uh, and whether they were, I guess, uh, cognitively or intellectually capable of producing rock art of this sophistication is a, is a big question. Um, but yeah, it's anything's possible. That was Adam Broom on the line from Sudoasi talking to our very own Marion Turner. Still to come, super bright x-rays and what in the universe is creating them? Plus the maths and science jokes hidden in The Simpsons. But first, it's the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. The brain states underlying curiosity have been picked apart by a team of curious neuroscientists. The team showed people a set of trivia questions and had them pick out which they were most curious about. Then they were tested on the answers while their brains were scanned. Brain regions involved in memory and reward were more active and talked to each other more when people remembered answers they were curious about. They even remembered irrelevant information better when it was presented during the test. Curious about that paper? Find it in Neuron. Plants suck up carbon dioxide, so you'd think that more plant growth would be a good thing for a warming climate. But in the Arctic, plants could be making warming worse. Areas covered with shrubs and grasses absorb more heat than barren surfaces, leading to warming. According to a new climate model, these plants start a vicious cycle of growth, warming of the surface, warming of the sea and finally melting of the sea ice. And that leads to more warming the following season. But vegetation is hard to model and the teams say they'll be working to improve it. More in environmental research letters. 
there's a lot that's mysterious about the universe. How big is it, really? Does anything else live here? Is there anything outside it? But also on this list of mysteries are some extremely bright objects, among the brightest things we know of, in fact. Astronomers call them ultraluminous X-ray sources, because that's what they often spew out. These X-ray sources were first spotted in the 1970s. This week, two teams report on two different X-ray sources and what causes them. The answers don't match. But as astronomer Jeanette Gladstone writes in an accompanying article, that only makes it more exciting. I called her at her base at the University of Alberta and she explained more about ULXs. So these objects were first discovered in the late 1970s and they were picked out in surveys of other galaxies, primarily because they looked strangely bright. We didn't really think things could get this bright. Are they the brightest objects in our universe, actually, as we know it? No, there are brighter things, but these are the supermassive black holes in the centre of galaxies. This is probably physics 101, but black holes, they swallow a lot of things. They swallow everything, in fact. So how does it work that they put out x-rays? So we don't actually see the black holes directly because, as you said, black holes swallow everything. They even swallow light. What happens is if they're feeding, we kind of look at them by seeing their effect on the surrounding area of space. So if they're feeding from a companion star, it'll slowly kind of pull off material um, and this material spirals in. As it spirals, it gets faster and faster and faster as it gets in towards the black hole. And as it gets faster, it gets hotter. As it gets hotter, it emits in higher and higher energies. And so starting at the outside of the disk, you kind of get this energy coming out probably in optical light. And then as you get in towards the center, it's going that fast that the energy radiating away from this is in x-rays. And so even though nothing can escape... Nothing can escape the black hole, but this is the disk of material that's falling in towards the black hole. And as you were saying, it was thought that there are objects um, that can put out very luminous x-rays, various different sizes of black hole, I suppose. Yeah, we know from our observations previously that the brightness of these objects kind of scales with mass and also scales with the speed that material is falling into the black hole. And so you've got these things that are intermediate in luminosity. And so one of the first ideas was that these would be intermediate in mass as well. And I suppose the Nature Papers, there are two of them and also some other findings. One of them seems to find a source that does seem to be powered by um, a black hole of about 15 solar masses. Yes. So this was what the community who study these objects had kind of settled on over the last couple of years. It looked as though they were still strangely bright, but that they were one of these stellar-sized black holes, as you said, about 15 times the mass of our sun. So this was still pretty exciting. But as you said, there's another discovery come out. um, And this has really kind of blown that idea out of the water. This is an object in the galaxy M82, and it's the second brightest object in that galaxy. And it's estimated to be roughly the brightness of about 10 million suns. And this object, when they looked at it, seemed to be doing something we'd never expected. They found little pulses in the X-ray light, so it would get slightly brighter and dimmer. And it would pulse on a period of about once every second, just over once every second. 
The only objects that we've come up with that can do this in X-rays are neutron stars, which are the smaller cousins of black holes. But these things only weigh about one and a half times the mass of our sun. They think it's an extreme version of a, of a neutron star. This is a neutron star on speed, basically. So this is something that is 10 to 15 times lighter than the other ULX that is being published. And yet it's shining with about the same luminosity. How does that work? It's pulling in material at about 10 times the speed of that black hole, at least. And does this um, go against what we thought neutron stars were capable of? We knew that some of these objects could get extreme, but this is 10 times brighter than any pulsar that has been seen before. And we should say pulsars and neutron stars are, in this case, we're talking about the same thing, aren't we? Yes, we're talking about the same thing here. Pulsars are neutron stars, but not all neutron stars are pulsars. And this is brighter than any of those that's been seen before, but brighter than even theorists thought they ought to be able to be. Yes. So the original theory that put this limit on how bright these things should be um, is about 100 times fainter than this object. What does this mean for physics of dying stars, I suppose, black holes and neutron stars? So if you combine these two results together, it tells us a lot more about ultraluminous X-ray sources and about the options that can be in there. It's telling us that we've got very different types of sources in this same little category of objects. Yeah, this is a proper menagerie of black hole and black hole alikes. Yeah. It's also telling us that our ideas about how these objects feed are not necessarily wrong, but we don't understand it fully. So this is really going to make theorists think about how these objects can feed and how we can push it to new limits. There's other implications behind this. So there's been objects seen by people who study the early universe, known as the first quasars, and these were really bright, massive black holes. And these were brighter than theorists thought possible. And so by looking at these objects that are nearby, it might give us a chance to explain these first quasars and how they grew so quickly. Um, And if you can find out how they grew so quickly, you can find out how they helped galaxies grow in the early universe. So it's telling us this information that we're finding out about these sources that are nearby can help us discover more about the evolution of the universe. That was Jeanette Gladstone at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. That's hard to sing. You're right, it is, but it's even harder to get the rights from Fox to use the actual theme tune. You've probably heard of the television show The Simpsons. After all, the yellow-faced residents of Springfield have been successfully broadcasting all over the world for more than two decades. But even the most avid fans might not have realised that some of the writers of The Simpsons are number-loving turbo nerds and have been sneaking maths past you since the very beginning. There's so much maths, in fact, that Simon Singh, a British science writer, has recently released a whole book about it. One of the sneaky geeks on the Simpsons writing team is David X. Cohen. And whilst he was in London last week to promote the book, I snatched an interview with him. Although there are a lot of math nerds writing for The Simpsons and Futurama, there are a lot of other kinds of nerds too. It's a, I used to call it the nerd museum. There's one of every type of nerd there. And 
we have these math jokes hidden in the background, but uh, we also have our history jokes and our law jokes. We, we have something for everybody hidden in the background. So can you give me an example of one of the more obscure references? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one for me and the one that sort of kicked this off and maybe caught Simon Singh's interest was this joke about Fermat's last theorem, if I can call it a joke. <laughs> I, I use the term liberally. I thought, oh, I'll stick in what appears to be a counterexample in the background that seems to disprove the theorem. Stuck this in the background. I then uh, lurked on the internet, which in those days was not even the World Wide Web, but these news groups, alt.tv.simpsons, for you old-time uh, computer people out there. Looked at it the next day, and sure enough, somebody had tried it on his calculator. He said, what's going on? This is impossible. But some other fans then came on there and started critiquing it and saying, hey, wait a second, this isn't so great. One side of the equation's even and one side is odd, so obviously this is not correct. And the only reason you fell for it is because your calculator has eight digits instead of ten. And so I actually did a very similar joke in, in this other later episode, The Wizard of Evergreen Terrace. And this one was correct to more digits and also had the uh, even odd thing correct on the two sides of the equal sign. So, so I was willing to take some feedback from the fans and uh, take their critiques to heart. That sounds like an inordinate amount of effort to put into what is essentially a very niche in-joke for you and about five other people around the planet. Yeah, and that's how this stuff started. You know, people ask me, oh, do you do it to educate people? And the answer is no. <laughs> we, we do it because it's fun for us. The one thing I hope is that the sense that it's a fun subject can creep through and maybe encourage people in that way, even if it's not intentionally educational. If somebody gets the idea that, oh, math is fun and it's not intimidating and the math people are not being portrayed as scary weirdos, then maybe we've done something slightly good for the world. Although Professor Frank is a bit of a scary weirdo. He's a scary weirdo, absolutely. Why is it you think that mathematicians make good comedy writers then? Generally, I think that people who are very knowledgeable about almost anything can be good comedy writers. So I'm the math guy, as I said, and we have a few other math guys, but we do have people from other directions. And I think the reason is that cartoons ultimately have to move at a very high pace because we have all these spaces to fill in the background with jokes or just because the pace of dialogue is faster. So it's good to have people who are knowledgeable on almost any subject you can think of in the writer's room so that no matter what the episode is about, someone is ready to go to chime in. So educated people in general are useful to have around. Now let's talk about another of Matt Groening's creations, a sister show to The Simpsons, Futurama. Um, you were a driving force on that show, right? The idea of Futurama is that a guy from our time, roughly the year 2000, give or take, falls into a cryogenic freezer tube and wakes up in the year 3000, where he becomes part of an intergalactic package delivery service with a bunch of strange people, robots, and aliens from the future. Now, on the face of it, this sci-fi series might seem like a more apt platform for sneaking maths into it. Uh, was it a treat for you not to have to be so subtle about it? Yes, absolutely. And we were still concerned, by the way, that we shouldn't alienate viewers with too much science or science fiction, especially at the beginning of the show. And we, we did try to keep it a little more down to earth. But the strange thing was we noticed that the people who liked the show in general actually really liked all the science and sci-fi references. So it's kind of a long feedback loop in animation where you, if the fans like it, it takes you another year to get an episode out. But, but we realized we could go further in that direction with Futurama without turning off the fans of that show. And the high point is probably an episode called The Prisoner of Benda. We had been talking about what's kind of a standard cartoon plot, a machine that can switch people's brains. So we tried to complicate it a little bit, and we thought, what if the machine can switch their brains, but it can't switch them back? 
And we started thinking, hmm, if all the characters' brains are jumbled up, is there a way for them to get their original brains back by passing them through intermediate third parties? And we actually didn't know if it was possible. We went home from work for the night, and the next day the author of the script, who fortuitously was Ken Keeler, PhD in applied mathematics, Ken Keeler, and he said, I proved it. (laughs) Um, And he had actually proven a theorem overnight that no matter how mixed up the characters' brains are, if you bring in two new characters who have not had their brains switched, then there is always a way that everyone can get their original brain back, including the two new people. So that, that actual theorem was proven in the episode of the show and shown on the air. And was it published? That was the publication. I think it might be the only math paper ever published in the form of a cartoon. So it seems like this is spiraling out of control. Do you expect more theorems to be popping up on Futurama and The <laughs> Simpsons? You need to come up with your own kind of academies. It's a good idea. You know, we need to diversify our business. So if we can steal a little bit of the science journal business, that might be good. Not good for you, but good for us. <laughs> but on a, on a deeper level, maybe, it actually has been very good for me because I've always felt guilty that I left science behind and I, I abandoned what to me is a more noble profession con- contributing to the knowledge of mankind. So if this actually inspires anybody to go into science, go into math and take the place that I left open when I, when I left, then makes me feel a little less guilty about my path in life. That was David X. Cohen and the book about science in The Simpsons by Simon Singh is out now in paperback. News time now, and joining me in the studio is Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver with news of the most Nobel Prizes in science. Oh, that was terrible. But it is Nobel Week, and on Monday, it was the turn of medicine or physiology. That's right. Three scientists received the prize for physiology, and it was for shedding light on one of neuroscience's great mysteries, which is how we know where we are in space. So this is sort of the inner, the brain's kind of inner GPS, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. Half the prize went to John O'Keefe of University College London, who discovered brain cells called place cells, which help us form a memory of an environment. The other half was shared by a married couple, Edvard and Maybrit Moser, who discovered another type of brain cell, a grid cell. And these fire in a hexagonal grid pattern that ends up forming a coordinate system that allows the brain to locate itself in space or the organism in which it sits in space. And these guys, the the married couple, as you said, the Moses and John O'Keefe, they have a sort of academic family tree going on. Edvard and Maybrit were postdocs in John O'Keefe's lab for a short time before they were offered positions at the University of Trondheim in Norway, which they took up and founded a lab which they started from scratch together very far north in Norway. Finding our way around in space, it sort of seems quite prosaic, but actually there are some quite profound implications of those findings. These discoveries feed into a bigger question of how the brain makes sense of the world, which is actually something we know very little about. Um, They also have some practical implications since both grid and place cells are found in parts of the brain that we know um, are attacked in Alzheimer's disease. Actually, losing your way is one of the early symptoms of Alzheimer's. So a very basic finding, as the Nobels often are, but some hints of a a practical end for this this finding. Now, uh, speaking of 
practicality. The physics prize on Tuesday went to the guys who found a way of making light-emitting diodes in a slightly different colour to the other light-emitting diodes that already existed. Yeah, and what I love about this prize is is a very rare example of the Nobel Prize being given for a practical invention. So something that now we all find in, in our phones and household lighting. You might think it's sort of unusual to have a Nobel Prize for something like an LED, which we all take quite for granted. Um, but actually, though green and red LEDs have been around since the 1960s, it was really, really hard to make the blue LED. Uh, and the, it was a blue LED that led to white lighting, which has been incredibly useful and led to kind of efficient lighting in homes. So the prize in physics for blue LED lights went to Shuji Nakamura, Hiroshi Amano and Isamu Akasaki. You said that the green and red uh, versions of these LEDs have been around for decades. What took so long with this blue equivalent? So there were several technological hurdles. Gallium nitride was the material that most um, physicists for a long time thought would be the one. But it was proved really difficult to make thin, high-quality crystals of the material and also to dope the material with other elements. A lot of physicists just gave up on gallium nitride and these three persisted long after that and eventually succeeded. Yeah, and one of them you were telling me just before we started chatting um, feels quite vindicated to have a Nobel Prize because actually the company he was working for when he developed this stuff didn't really want to give him any money for it. Yeah, uh, Shuji Nakamura, who actually left Japan in 2000 to join the University of California, Santa Barbara, um, sued the company Nichia in 2001 for the scant compensation they'd given him for developing the blue LED while he worked there. The case was settled in 2005 when Nakamura uh, finally accepted $8.1 million from the company. What a vindication to have pursued that lawsuit and then, and then to get a Nobel Prize for that work. Vindication, financial and scientific. And finally, the Chemistry Prize just awarded today. Yes, the prize has been awarded to Eric Betzig, Stefan Hell and William Morner for nanoscopy, a form of super-resolution microscopy. So this enables scientists to do what they thought they weren't going to be able to do, which is look at stuff at the nanoscale. That's right. Until recently, or fairly recently, uh, scientists assumed that we would never be able to resolve distances smaller than half the wavelength of light, which is 0.2 micrometres. Um, but these three laureates managed to break through this limit and bring optical microscopy down to the nanoscale. And what is there that's interesting to see down there? Loads of stuff. <laughs> uh, so one thing was just being able to see inside a cell, a nerve cell, for example, and see all the different components of the cell moving around. Uh, scientists had understood the sort of mathematics behind that, but it's a whole other thing to actually be able to watch those things happening. Um, there are also practical implications for some of the things they could see. For example, the proteins involved in Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease um, as they aggregate and also following individual proteins in fertilised eggs as these divide into embryos. All right, so that was the Chemistry Prize for looking at very small things awarded to two scientists from the US and one Germany-based. So there you have it. Brains that can tell where they are, efficient light bulbs for our homes and the, some of the smallest things we can see inside Cells, Nobel Prizes 2014. Thank you, Celeste. And of course, Nature's full coverage of the prizes is at nature.com slash news. There's also, coincidentally, a feature story about the Moses who won the Medicinal Physiology Prize that's just gone live on our website. Again, that's nature.com forward slash news.
For those of you who enjoyed Back Chat, we're going to try doing it monthly, so look out for the October issue landing on your feed in the next week or so for our thoughts on what covering the Nobel Prizes is really like, whether I won my bet about them, and other nuggets of science, wisdom and folly. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh. 